play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Now, before we get to our guest, we have a very, very, very exciting announcement to make. Yesterday, I woke up and I knew that yesterday was the day that the James Beard Award nominations for media were going to be announced. So I pull out my phone, I'm laying in bed, and I'm checking for an email, and I'm like, oh, I didn't get an email. I guess we're not nominated. Then I start just looking at the generic email they sent out to everyone. I'm scrolling through. Oh, there's Ina Garden. Oh, there's Bobby Flay. Oh, what? There's Rachel Bell at your last meal. I was so, I jumped out of bed. I started pacing. I called my producer here, Uh Aaron Mason, immediately. So we have been nominated for a James Beard Award. And if, if you don't know what this is, this is like the Oscars, the Grammys, the Tonys of the food world. I mentioned some big names there earlier. This is like the most exciting thing that has ever happened in my career. Yeah, this is absolutely insane. It's insane. Yes. There is no other award that would make me this excited. Like, this is the top. I've spent my entire life, literally, since I was a little kid, being obsessed with food. Uh, and I've worked in the news world for 15 years. So this podcast involves food. So it's something I'm passionate about. I've had the idea for this podcast for years. It's just really meaningful and very exciting. So Aaron and I are going to New York City, April 27th. That is when the awards are going to be announced. I'm going to frost my tips like Guy Fieri, (laughs) who I actually heard is in Seattle today. Is he? He's taping something. I'm trying to get to him. You know what I'm saying? uh, Because I want to go to Flavortown with him and win... This award. Kick back a couple bottles of donkey sauce. Yeah, you heard that's me. what it's called. Yes, exactly. So I know this sounds really generic and cheesy and people say this, but like, I don't even care if we win. It was an honor to be nominated. And I mean that. Like, I w- it would be great if we won, but I don't really care. Like, this is enough for me. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing to be in the company of like really great shows. There are only three nominees, and they're both from like big networks that do huge podcast things and to for the two of us we are we are it we We are are the your last meal team just the two of us and we both do a ton of other work so we're up against a sporkful um you may remember dan pashman he was one of my guests he wanted uh for his last meal anything wrapped in a tortilla and then we're also up against a podcast called why we eat what we eat uh which is done by gimlet which is to me like the holy grail of podcasting so good luck to all and thanks for listening to us brag And let's get back to the show. Today on the program, I chat with award-winning journalist and author Maria Shriver. Maria's seventh book just came out. It's called I've Been Thinking, Reflections, Prayers, and Meditations for a Meaningful Life. And I was stoked to hear what Maria's last meal was because this is one we haven't done before. Get in the station wagon, kids. We're going to Burger Town. One may argue that the only food that is more classically American than apple pie is is the hamburger. Now, a lot of people will say it's actually from Germany. Yes, it is. But you're also wrong. So we're going to learn about the history of the great American hamburger from George Motes. He is the author of the book Hamburger America, and he has built a 20-year career talking about burgers. The age-old question, is the hamburger technically a sandwich? Hmm, that's a great question. Um... We will learn about that. And then I'm going to introduce you to a guy named Kevin Alexander, who will make you positively, 
hate your own job. This dude is a national burger critic. He eats hamburgers for a living. And Thrillist let him travel around the U.S. for an entire year. He ate 330 burgers in 30 cities in search of the country's very best. There's nothing better than a good burger. I love going into kind of divey places with like crotchety old people at the grill. I mean, there's something kind of primal about that sizzling meat and cheese and then the mix of like acid from the pickle and the buttered bread and oh, it just makes you happy. I don't know. See, I'm, I'm not even I'm not even able to articulate. <laughs> I'm just making noises. Plus, the most common things that Americans give up for Lent. But right now, Maria Shriver. All right, let's talk about food a little bit. So my podcast is called Your Last Meal. And the idea is kind of to narrow down what's most important to you. You know, it's not like about being on death row or about dying. It's like, you know, what memories or, you know, what's really special to you. So uh, what would you choose for your last meal? Hamburger, really crispy fries. Probably some chips and guacamole. I've thought about that, actually, because a lot of these things I give up every year for Lent. Uh, and food has always been a big part of my life. It's actually been a bit of a struggle in my life, right? Sugar has been a struggle for me. So every year at Lent, I give up food um, that's instrumental in my life. This year, I decided to give up self-doubt uh, because I gave up popcorn, which is really big to me. I gave up chips and guac, which are really big to me. But um, you know, so I, I have a comfort association with food. So food is big to me. Yeah, you knew hamburger right away. You answered immediately. So can you describe your ideal burger? And crispy fries, too. And I've went through a period the last kind of couple months of trying to be more vegan, more plant-based. And um, But I, you know, really like a good hamburger. I really love French fries. I'm sorry. To, I know it's, it's – so if there's somebody out there who's like, oh, my God, that's terrible. Um I get it. I really love corn on the cob. I love, um, you know, and I guess I associate, which is probably also not good, but I associate food with comfort. I think many of us have an emotional relationship with food. We think about when we were little. We think about, you know, food that we grew up on and that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, I like kind of just a plain, regular hamburger. Sometimes I like tomatoes on it, uh, you know, grass-fed. Oh, yes, of course, grass-fed. And um, I actually really like buns, too, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> and, um, but I, I, and I like it with really crispy fries. I used to like ketchup, but now I don't have ketchup anymore. So where does this burger and fries come from? I think just, you know, when I was little, my mom served a lot of um, steak or, you know, I guess hamburgers. And um, so I just like it. <laughs> yeah. Who makes your best burger? Do you go out to have this or is this something that you have at home? Well, my son, Christopher, makes a really good burger, but I also, um, you know, and by the way, you were asking me my last, I'm not eating a lot of burgers. I don't have a lot of burgers, but um, actually last week when my book came out, I celebrated and it went shooting up to number one and I celebrated with a burger and fries in my hotel. (laughs) Yes. Did you get room service? I did. I got room service and I sat there and I was like, wow, I feel so grateful. I feel so proud of myself. I'm going to have a burger and fries. Did you eat it in bed? I ate it. No, I ate it watching the news. And that's probably not a good way to eat your burger. Well, you're a news lady because, you know, when you get room service, there is something fun about eating in bed because you're not supposed to. Like even, you know, Ernie and Bert got in trouble for eating in bed. Well, Ernie did. Bert yeah, didn't, didn't like it. I didn't eat in bed. I ate kind of just sitting there 
you know, was they bring it in. But I just, you know, I think, wow, how lucky am I to actually get room service? So Maria Shriver mentioned that she often gives up food for Lent. She's given up popcorn. She's given up chips and guac. And we happen to be right smack dab in the middle of Lent right now which is a fact that I learned by Googling because I'm a Jew and I don't know these things. Uh, So I wanted to know what is the most common thing that Americans give up for Lent? And there's a website called openbible.info and they track what people give up basically moment to moment. They do it through Twitter. So it's like they have some kind of computer program that scans Twitter and probably like searches for the word Lent uh, and they tell you what people are giving up right now. So there must be a lot of kids who are reporting Uh, Because it says the number one thing right now, by far, that people give up for Lent is school. (laughs) School. I don't think it works that way. I don't either. I don't either. And then number two is chocolate. Number three is Twitter. Number four is swearing. Number five is alcohol. I skimmed down the list and just pulled a couple random things. Um, Number 15, the most popular thing to give up for Lent is sex. And number 66 is Obama. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but even though even though school is the number one thing on the list, uh, there are a lot of food items on this list. There's like hundreds of things. So the top category of things people give up is food. So out of the things they've collected, uh, 62,453 tweets were about giving up food for Lent. So that's that. We're done with the Catholic portion of the episode. The rest of the time, we're going to be talking about burgers. I'm in a burger club. So that means that like about once a month we go out for burgers and then we talk about them in serious tones, what we like, what we don't like. Uh, And my mouth is watering right now. When I talk about my burger club, my mouth starts watering. So this is going to be a rough episode. This is a delicious episode. It's a juicy episode. I don't know. Might be kind of a punny episode if you let us do it that way. Oh, boy. So uh, catch up with us after the break. (laughs) When we reveal the history of the hamburger and... The strange thing that people used to do with ketchup at burger joints during World War II. We'll be back in a flash. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite 
just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. George Motes has been talking about burgers in a professional sense for nearly 20 years. He is the author of Hamburger America, which is a hamburger guidebook. It's about to come out in its third edition. Uh, he also made a documentary film called Hamburger America. He was the host of a show called Burgerland on the Travel Channel. And he's the author of the Great American Burger Book Cookbook. Let's start at the very beginning and talk about the history of the hamburger. And that is a hamburger without buns when it started, correct? Well, that's correct. I mean, it came to America. I don't know how far back you want me to go. but I... The farthest. I want like Jesus eating a hamburger. Okay, I can go back to the Mongols in the 13th century. Want to go there? Yes, please. <laughs> but apparently, the Mongols and the Tartars uh, would ride uh, for days. They would actually take bits of mutton and put it under their saddles to tenderize it while they rode. And at the end of the day, they would have sort of tenderized uh, mutton. Uh, eventually, over the century, over the hundreds of years, it managed to make its way to the ports in the Baltic Sea, uh, made its way to Germany eventually, specifically the port of Hamburg, which you'll see where the name comes from. Over the years, it became known as the Hamburg steak. A steak done in the style of Hamburg, Hamburg, Germany, was chopped beef and then cooked somehow, put it served on a plate with onions and potatoes. So it's chopped up and is it like smushed into a patty shape? Yeah, for the first time, it was actually smushed into a patty and then cooked over a flame or, or in a pan. Uh, it eventually made its way to, from mutton to beef, thank God. A lot of people who were trying to seek passage to America from Germany, they had to leave out of the port of Hamburg. Germans would end up in America, and they would find people selling Hamburg steak out of carts throughout lower Manhattan. Uh, and eventually, uh, it ended up uh, becoming so popular that it was it was in the at state fairs. A lot of Midwestern state fairs would have a booth you could sit down and eat with a knife and fork, and people were starting to walk by with hot dogs and portable foods like you know like ice cream on cones. And somebody came up with a brilliant idea at some point to put the Hamburg steak onto a piece of bread. So about what time do we think that was in history? It's undocumented, but it's something somewhere in the range of 1875 to 1895, that 20-year span. I like to think it was documented, but somebody wrote it in ketchup, like on a bun, and then someone ate it. So we don't have the evidence with us today. The evidence is gone. It's gone. Okay, so then people are eating this Hamburg at state fairs between bread. uh, And then where did it go from there? place called uh, Louis Lunch in New Haven, Connecticut. They say that the first technically put um, a Hamburg steak onto bread, but they weren't. But they do have the claim of being the oldest continually operating hamburger restaurant in America. They've been around now for 100 and, I think 123 years, but they've had the burger on the menu for 118 years now. Wow. Do we know if that burger is the same way that they made it back then or have they evolved it? It's, it's actually pretty close. The only thing that's changed is that they now use, instead of using whatever bread they had around, this all predates the hamburger bun also. So now Louis Lunch still sells the same Pepperidge Farm toast that they've been selling for, for decades and decades and decades. And then from there, where do we go? Well, unfortunately, uh, bad things happened. Uh, Upton Sinclair, um, who wrote a book called The Jungle, it was an expose on specifically meatpacking and what was going on in meatpacking um, facilities, uh, sp- specifically in Chicago. I mean, I couldn't, I don't want to go into graphic detail, but there's some, you know, some bad things were happening. It was unregulated. That was the problem. And this book uh, started the thinking process towards uh, government uh, rules and regulation. It actually helped a lot. <laughs> they attempted to take down, did a very good job um, with the meatpacking industry, um, as we all know, in the beginning of the 20th century. And all of a sudden, any kind of meat product, especially low-end meat product like hamburger, got a really bad name. 
Uh, it took uh, about, uh, I think, two decades for the hamburger to come back, and it was thanks to one company, and it's still around, believe it or not, uh, White Castle. White Castle actually saved the American hamburger, and I give them lots of credit for that. <laughs> but that's actually the best part of the story because it was one guy, a guy named um, Billy Ingram, uh, who noticed something interesting happening. He went. He was visiting a, um, a friend – a guy had a hamburger stand. It, was, it ended up becoming White Castle. A guy named Walt Anderson. This is, I'm sorry, sorry if this is getting too detailed, but this is kind of exciting for me. <laughs> no, I love details. No, no, no. Tell me everything. Everybody, we want more details, the better. So Billy Ingram was a um, real estate guy in Wichita, Kansas, and he was he was uh, trying to find his next big thing, his next big um, you know idea. Billy Ingram noticed that there were kids that were buying hamburgers, then running around the corner and jumping into limousines that were heading back to the, of course, the wealthy side of town. And he saw that the hamburger was more popular across the American strata than he thought. And he told Walt Anderson this. He was he was just making burgers for for you know for wage earners and uh, and the working class people of Wichita. And he came up with the idea to clean up the hamburger's image by creating a, a very sturdy white structure he, they decided to call White Castle. It's an incredible story because once the hamburger's popularity took off, everyone in America wanted to have the, a piece of this hamburger action. Uh, they, they would own restaurants. They would call the restaurant you know, White Tower and, and White, uh, white Diamond. Um, and if they had the word castle or white in the name of the restaurant, they would be doing well. And so White Castle came before McDonald's then. Is that true? Oh, yeah. They, they predated them by 20 years. Sure. Okay. And actually, what's very important about White Castle was that they also invented a lot of the fast food things that we use today. For example, they invented, technically invented the hamburger bun. They, they were the first to standardize the hamburger bun. George says the original American hamburger was actually very small. Basically, it was a slider. He said they only would use about an ounce and a half of meat, and then they would smush it down on the grill. And then it was uh, cooked maybe with some onions, uh, and later on was served with a pickle mustard and ketchup. Ketchup came a little bit later. Mustard was really one of the original condiments on a burger. So that little tiny almost slider of a White Castle burger, is that the original size? Yeah, that's it. I mean, the um, if, you, if you ever come across a burger that is that small and is very simple with nothing on it, not even cheese, um, that is that actually will have in it the DNA of the original American hamburger. Do you happen to know how those condiments became associated with a burger? How did ketchup and mustard get into the burger realm? I do know. <laughs> you know everything. You've been uh, doing hamburgers for 20 out, years. <laughs> people thought onions started out as a flavor component, but it wasn't at all. Actually, onions were included were introduced by places like, like White Castle specifically. If you pressed onions into beef, it would make the patty bigger. And they realized that by doing that, by pressing the onions into the patty, they were actually creating this incredible flavor profile accidentally because the onions then render and caramelize and become part of uh, the hamburger flavor. Ketchup's a different story. Ketchup was actually introduced much later, but it was introduced as a way to get kids interested in eating hamburgers. It made the burger taste a little sweeter. I and mean, there's a story about during the Depression, people used to actually go into, you know, like if you had no money, you could walk into a hamburger joint, uh, ask for a cup of hot water, <laughs> like for tea. And instead of putting tea, t- take a ketchup bottle and squeeze some ketchup in and make yourself some tomato soup. Ooh. <laughs> So how did um, French fries and hamburgers become one in the same? They're always together. They've been a married couple for longer than Ernie and Bert. How did that match get made? I love this question. During World War II, most restaurants were asked to not serve meat one day a week. And of course, for a hamburger restaurant, that meant shutting down. So in order to actually stay stay in business, a lot of hamburger restaurants started offering uh, French fries on Meatless Tuesdays. And that's how it became popular. Oh, I love that. So they would just have French fries on that day. 
or if they have French fries, and then once it became popular, they said, you know, uh, if they also didn't have enough hamburger meat, they would offer. Somebody would walk in and say, can I have four sliders or four hamburgers? And then they'd say, can we give you, you know, an order of fries and two burgers <laughs> instead? And were fries already popular in America? Uh, no, they were not at all. I believe, actually, it may have been another invention or another introduction by White Castle. Just like New York pizza is distinguishable from Chicago pizza, which is totally different from Detroit-style pizza, America also has regional burgers. If you're in New Mexico, there's the green chili cheeseburger. You, know, you really can't find a green chili cheeseburger outside of the Southwest and specifically outside of New Mexico where they really – every restaurant will have one on the menu. Um, it's just They're just green chilies that have been stewed and put on a burger with, with good cheese and that's it. Um, you've got the the butter burger of um, Wisconsin. I mean, a lot of a lot of places in uh, Wisconsin will serve a, a burger with nothing more than butter on it. That's it, just butter and maybe cheese. Is there uh, butter on Wisconsin the patty, butter. or it's like a buttery toasted bun? They treat uh, butter as a condiment. It's almost like a big uh, dollop of cheese in a way. Yum. Yeah. <laughs> Some people say yuck. I'm glad you said that. Oh no, butter on everything. I actually am one of those people. I can eat butter plain. I do that in private. I don't usually talk about it. <laughs> I love this. Go on. I want to hear more. Okay. <laughs> the Slug Burger of northern Mississippi, which is very, very important because that burger actually predates the Depression uh, in very poor northern Mississippi where people would take extenders to put them in their beef. And honestly, the, the first extender they discovered was uh, they would take uh, breadcrumbs. So yesterday's bread became you know, today's breadcrumbs. It would end up going into the beef and created this incredible burger called the Slug Burger. It was actually half beef and half bread. But what happened was as the beef fat renders, it goes onto the griddle and then actually fries up those little bits of bread. So it becomes a very powerfully beefy burger. I mean, these days they serve them mostly, again, it's very traditional. It's served with uh, nothing more than onions, pickle, and mustard. Who named it hamburger? Who added the E and the R? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. It's just <laughs> that a, person's a genius. <laughs> that person, I know this person came in. Maybe they worked at the ER. Maybe they were a doctor or a nurse or something. Maybe, yeah, they thought this was like a life saving sandwich. Maybe they were from Hamburg and that people who are from Hamburg are hamburgers. Ooh, maybe hamburglers. Just you saying the word hamburger actually makes my mouth water and it makes me want a hamburger. What is it about this food that you think uh, is just such an iconic food and something that everyone seems to be able to agree on? It's one of those uh, foods in America that is readily available everywhere. Um, it's always been something that people go to just because I'm hungry and I know it's going to satisfy. That's sort of that's the baseline for the love of the hamburger. I think also Americans know that it's inherently American. No matter who you are, you know, in America, you can you can enjoy a hamburger whether you're in a steakhouse or in a small burger joint. It, it actually it also evokes a lot of nostalgia. A lot of childhood memories. Uh, so it's a very important food th food stuff, I think, in America. It's also one of the only, if not the only, real food invention in America in the last 100 years. Oh, really? Yeah. What about the cronut? <laughs> Why are we counting that? Uh. <laughs> So before last year, I didn't feel like I had a big burger vocabulary. You know, it was like lettuce, tomato, onions, that kind of thing. But I didn't know there were different categories of burgers and which one I was drawn to. And the person who helped me understand all of this, who enhanced my burger vocabulary, is Kevin Alexander. He's a writer at large at Thrillist. He spent a year eating 330 burgers across America. And he will tell you what he thinks the best burger in America is as well as the biggest crime that can be committed when you're building a burger. We'll be back after this break. Thrillist writer-at-large Kevin Alexander spent a dreamy year 
Well, actually, it wasn't super dreamy because eating 330 burgers in 30 cities sounds really fun. It's a little tough on the gut. For example, when he was in Seattle, he ate 14 burgers in one day. Oh, How does it work with palate fatigue? Because if you are eating a dozen burgers, say, in about 24 hours, can the last burger of the day compete with the first burger of the day? That's a great question. I would only eat three to four bites of each burger. I usually would try not to eat more than eight burgers in a day, which I know sounds crazy when you say it out loud. But like I tried to not be too full. But there is. It's true. Like you get to the last places and you're sort of like, oh, my God, I never want to see another burger again. And there were times where like I I literally thought I was going to throw up. And and one time in Cleveland where I actually did. But um, I got to a point as a professional where you just recognized when a burger was great, regardless of how full you were. But I definitely still felt like I wanted to die most of the time. So Kevin <laughs> so Kevin crafted a list of the top 100 burgers in America. But of course, this is, this is just Kevin's opinion. People read these lists. They're like, this is the best burger. Well, not if you don't have the same taste in burgers as Kevin does. Uh, and a few years ago, I figured out how a restaurant critic actually works in society. So here at Cairo Radio, where I work, um, one of my buddies, one of my favorite coworkers is Tom Tangney. He is our movie critic. And Tom and I are in sync about 90% of the time on films. And so I finally realized, you know, Tom is the same taste as me. I need to follow and read his reviews. When I was in high school or college, I would just read any review in the paper like, oh, they don't like it. I'm not going to go. They like it. I'm going to go. None of that matters unless you have the same taste as the person. So that's something that I figured out the same thing with with food critics. So you have to read and see if you like the same kind of food as a food critic does. Otherwise, the review is meaningless to you. So you need to understand what Kevin's taste in burgers is. It's the diner style, kind of thin patty, griddled, like soft white bun that's toasted, uh, American cheese, caramelized onions. You need acid from some pickles and maybe like a little mustard mayo mixture or something like that or Thousand Island. Or, but that's it. I, I like the most basic burgers. Kevin taught me there are two categories of burgers. There's the tavern burger and the restaurant burger. So the tavern burger is usually a thin patty. It's smashed down on a flat top and it's really simple. Toasted bun, a couple of pickles, you know, maybe ketchup and mustard, maybe just mustard, no lettuce and tomato usually. And this is something that you would probably get at like a divier place uh, or a bar. And then there's the restaurant burger. And this is like the big, fat, juicy burger that you can get cooked however you want, like medium rare. That's when you get to choose because it's fat enough for that. And this is where you can have bacon and cheese and a fried egg on top. Uh, It's usually a taller burger. And that's the kind of burger that I like. It doesn't have to be fancy, but um, I went to a couple of places that Kevin really liked in Seattle and was like, "Mm, this is okay. I would not come back like it was a fine burger. I like a big, fat, juicy burger. I'm a tavern burger guy. You are? I yeah, feel like... I like it real simple, yeah. you know, not so much meat. And I can't eat those big restaurant burgers. I don't understand how people, are they snakes? Do they unlock their bottom <laughs> jaw to fit these burgers in? I don't know how it happens. You can ask me. I'm a restaurant burger person. Hey, Rachel, how do you eat those ginormous burgers? Oh, I unlock my jaw like a snake. <laughs> what is the biggest burger crime that can be committed? Mm, not toasting the bun. I can't tell you how many places I've gone that the bottom bun, by the time you've taken two bites, is a soggy, like, pink slop. And it's just such a turnoff, and it just ruins the entire composition of the burger. 
you know, you either have to take it off or you're getting like little bits of wet bread that are, oh, it's so gross. I get so upset when people don't toast their buns, especially if they've got a great burger because it's such a waste. Oh, do you, do you see, do you hear how emotional I'm getting right now? Okay. So he thinks the biggest crime is a soggy bun. Let's talk about some things that might be considered trashy in the food world that are completely appropriate in the burger world. Number one, it has to be crunchy lettuce. It has to be iceberg. You know, when I'm having a salad, I don't want an iceberg lettuce salad, but there's no point of having lettuce that doesn't crunch on a burger where it just gets wet and it kind of like sticks to the roof of your mouth. Some people are adamant that it be shredded iceberg lettuce. A lot of people, you don't like that? No, that's foolish. You're making a face. Maybe on like a McChicken sandwich, you okay. know? Like yeah. that's, I think of shredded lettuce there, yeah. but not on a burger. Another thing is American cheese. Completely okay on a burger. A lot of people prefer it because it just has that great meltability. All right, so we've been building this up here with Kevin. What is the best burger in America, in Kevin Alexander's opinion? Stanich's in Portland, a divey sports bar that's been around Portland since 1949. When you think of Portland, you think of sort of like the hipster new food spots. And this is like the farthest thing from that. Steve Stanich, the old, the old owner, cried when I told him that I thought it was the best burger in the country. And that was Maria Shriver's last meal. Pick up Maria's new book. It's called I've Been Thinking, Reflections, Prayers, and Meditations for a Meaningful Life. Here's Maria talking a little bit more about the book. There comes a time in all of our lives, and for some people it's in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond, where we begin to reevaluate what power is, what success is. Uh, what faith is, what forgiveness is, what fear is, and what do all of these issues, how do they play into our lives, and what are our lives truly about? So my hope is that this book will be a coach of sorts, a companion of sorts, an inspiration of sorts, uh, to let you know that we all ask these questions, we all fall down, we all get up, and we all, I think, ultimately want to live a meaningful life, and hopefully this is a bit of a guide to do that. Thanks to George Motes, author of Hamburger America. The third edition is coming out in May. Ooh, and I realized that I totally left you hanging at the beginning of the episode. I asked him a question, and I didn't allow him to answer it. So let's do that right now. The age-old question, is the hamburger technically a sandwich? Mmm, that's a great question. Um, I would say yes, it is, technically. Because anything that's it's a vehicle you know, <laughs> on bread of some sort, I believe it's a sandwich. And in fact, the original, I mean, if you go back to Louis lunch, you know, 118 years ago, they invented something they actually have called the Hamburg sandwich. Thanks to Thrillist, writer at large and hamburger reporter. I'm coming after that job, Kevin Alexander. Kevin Alexander. <laughs> uh, this James Beard Award nominated podcast, what is produced by Aaron Mason and me. Theme music, as always, by Prom Queen. You can find me on Twitter at I'm Rachel Bell, B-E-L-L-E, and on Facebook at Hello Rachel Bell. Say hello. Tell us what your last meal would be. I want to know what everyone's last meal would be. You do. It's true. Tell me. Tell me. I get so excited. It's kind of weird. It is. It is. It isn't weird. <laughs> You're weird. You're weird. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast. Rate us on iTunes. Listen wherever you get podcasts. And tell a friend. Phone a friend. What was that show called? Who wants to be a millionaire? Yep. Phone Regis. Tell him to listen to the podcast. <laughs> oh, I'd love to get Reg on. All right. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal. Hi, Reg. 